So 1 Kings 19 verses 1 to 9. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled for forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, good morning. What we're going to be looking at today is what do we do when you come completely to the end of yourself? What do you do when someone that you know comes completely to the end of themselves? When they find themselves physically, emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically on the edge. They feel as if life has given up on them. They feel as if God has given up on them. They feel as if work has given up on them. They feel as if family or friends have given up on them. And they feel that they are desperately, desperately alone and forgotten. How do you look after someone in that situation? Or if that's you this morning, what does God want to say to you in this place at this time. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this subject this morning, uh, through this passage of how you served Elijah, we pray that you might minister and serve us, that we might serve other people, but also that we might know your healing in our lives as we share your heart with the people around us. So would you come now again by your spirit. Thank you for the truth that we've been singing, that we are now no longer slaves to fear, but that we can be your children. And as your children, we ask you this morning to come and to speak fatherly words of compassion and tenderness and restoration and renewal into our souls, into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't got a Bible, um, then do grab one, either from the front of the balcony or the ground uh, floor. There's some back there, because we're going to go through this passage from 1 Kings chapter 19. It's going to be really helpful if you actually have the text in front of you, because they're going to be referring to different verses. Uh, so just get up now and go and get a Bible. That's absolutely fine. And, uh, or if you've got one on your smartphone or your tablet, then just uh, get up. The U version is the best, I find, and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. And 1 Kings chapter 19 
comes after 1 Kings chapter 18. You can, take, you can tell I'm a trained theologian, I'm a professional at this. 1 Kings chapter 19 comes after 1 Kings chapter 18. And that's significant. Because what happens in 1 Kings chapter 18 determines why Elijah is feeling as he is feeling in 1 Kings chapter 19. It is the mountaintop experience to end all mountaintop experiences. It's one of the most dramatic power encounters or confrontations in the whole of the Old Testament, perhaps in the whole of the history of the world. On one side is Elijah, the prophet of God and God, the God of Israel. On the other is the king of Israel, King Ahab, and 850 prophets, both of Baal and Asherah. And it all comes down to this confrontation on Mount Carmel between Elijah and God and King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Elijah calls down fire from heaven and... The prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah are wiped out. Nearly a thousand men are killed on one day. And Elijah begins to think that maybe things are turning his way. Now things would be different. After years of corruption, after years of having to prophesy against the king and how the worship life of Israel was going, now surely would be the time when Elijah is going to be vindicated. Elijah has won this great victory. Well, God has won this great victory, but Elijah thinks probably he's had something to do with it. So he sprints 17 miles. He runs more than the distance of half a marathon. He sprints 17 miles back to the palace. He actually runs so fast that he arrives at the palace ahead of King Ahab, and all his entourage. King Ahab is, is traveling by a chariot. King Ahab is traveling fairly quickly. Elijah is so pumped by adrenaline that he, and the success of what's happened on Mount Carmel that he sprints back to the palace to be there when King Ahab arrives. Because this will be the time when surely Elijah is vindicated. This will be the time when Ahab will say, you know, Elijah, you were right all these years. Elijah, you've got it right and I've got it wrong. Elijah, you're going to be promoted. Elijah, you're going to be vindicated. Elijah, I'm going to issue an edict all through Israel that the, that the altars to Baal and the, the Asherah poles are going to be cut down and wiped out and we're all going to turn back to worship the, the living God whom you worship and whom you have been telling us about all these years. Elijah, I've got it wrong. The king has got it wrong. You're going to be promoted, you're going to be vindicated, and everybody is going to say Elijah was right all the time. But that is not what happens. What happens is that the king arrives and tells Jezebel, his queen, what's gone down on Mount Carmel. And the queen utters this threat in 1 Kings 19 and verse 2, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And by the them, she's referring to the prophets of Baal and Asherah who have all been wiped out at Mount Carmel. Queen Jezebel pronounces a death sentence over Elijah. 
And Elijah, who is on this mountaintop plateau, thinking he is about to be vindicated in front of the whole of Israel, this mighty man of God runs for his life. One word from this queen, and he just pelts out. And he runs 150 miles to Beersheba. He goes from the mountaintop to suicidal despair in about three minutes. Why did he react like that? How had his life fallen apart so dramatically? And what might we learn when we feel like that? When we feel as though God or life or work or situations combine so we reach the end of ourselves. When we're tempted, probably at three o'clock in the morning, to wake up and think, everyone's forgotten about me. Everyone thinks I'm a word I can't say in a sermon. We just give up. What do we do in those situations? Or what do we do when we have somebody that we know and care for when they feel like that as well? What we have in 1 Kings chapter 19 is almost a case study in how God deals with somebody (coughs) who is right on the edge, but also how God deals with us and how we might deal with other people. So we have, if you like, a study in exhaustion, Elijah. He's been running hard for many, many years. I, I managed to position a study in exhaustion just in such a way on that PowerPoint slide that it's supposed to say E and F, but it actually just says F and F. That's a a tribute to my PowerPoint skills. But what do you do when life makes you feel like that? When you feel that you are utterly empty, when you have no reserves left whatsoever, because that's how Elijah feels. He's prayed and he's fasted and he's prayed for years. He's waged a sort of one-man campaign against corruption and spiritual rebellion against God. And here he is physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually exhausted. He sprints over half a marathon towards the palace. He then walks probably or runs more slowly 150 miles to Beersheba and where we find him now he is utterly, utterly exhausted. Maybe you've hit a situation like that. It might have been in a doctor's waiting room and some results came back from a test. And the words were uttered by the doctor, and it was like a blow, a physical blow to you. Maybe you were younger, and you got the results of an exam that you failed, perhaps. Maybe it was the news of a bereavement. One of the the sad parts of my job is often that I am the one who breaks it to people, that someone that they know and love has died and I've sat with people and had to tell them and just watch their shoulders just sag and and visibly they they age almost in front of you it's quite odd maybe it was being made redundant maybe it was being forced to retire some people struggle with this whole adjustment into retirement maybe it was a breakup in a relationship or the breakdown of a marriage 
And it just left you feeling on the edge. It left you feeling utterly alone. It left you feeling utterly exhausted. It left you feeling completely isolated. And it left you feeling that even God had given up on you and there was nowhere to go. Remember the effect on on my dad about 30 years ago now of of being made redundant in a particularly grim way. His his company that he'd worked for for 15, 20 years, it was a multinational firm and um, they called him up um, just south of Newcastle and uh, they were going to do a trade exhibition uh, later that month and they decided that all the people representing the company would all wear the same suit and so he was measured for his suit for the trade exhibition at 2 p.m. And at 3 p.m. he was called into the same office and told that after 15 years with the same firm, that was it. He was being made redundant. They said he could go next door to make a phone call to phone his trade association. He went through, uh, made a phone call. When he came back, the file that he had left on the desk. All the contact business cards, this is before the internet, all the contact cards, contact cards that he had from all his contacts that he built up over 15, 20 years, all those cards had been physically removed from his file. When he said to his boss, they've all gone, his boss said, what? Complete denial. And he had to drive back from the northeast of England to just south of Manchester and explain to my mum that that was it. After all those years, no job. And he went down, down, down into a spiral of of deep, deep depression. And I remember going to see him about a week later and he'd physically shrunk as he sat and contemplated the rest of his life without paid employment. My dad actually did descend into depression. Now Elijah may not be clinically depressed as we know it, but he is a study in depression. That's where Elijah finds himself now. He may not be clinically depressed as we know it, but he's pretty, pretty close to it. There are similarities. His sense of perspective and proportion has gone. He's physically exhausted. He's emotionally spent, and he is suicidal. In 1 Kings 19, verse 4, he says simply, Take my life, Lord. I have had enough. Sitting under this broom bush, in the wilderness. Do you notice in verse 3, he sends his servant away and he walks by himself for one more day into the wilderness and he sits under this tree and he says, Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. That's it. He wasn't alone in feeling that in the, in the, the Old Testament. You look at the life of Moses, look at the life of Jonah. Both those characters get to this same point where they say, Lord, I've had enough. Take my life, I just want to die. Throughout history, people have wrestled with deep, dark moods and even depression. Some of the most creative minds that we have known in our history and culture, people like Beethoven, Darwin, Van Gogh, Tolstoy, John Wesley, Lord Shaftesbury, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, even the reformer Martin Luther, all battled with bouts of depression. So Winston Churchill, about whom this latest film has been made, described his battle with depression as his black dog. He wrote about it again and again in his journals, that somehow he would be dogged by this black dog of depression, these deep moods into which he would descend. 
Different cultures, different societies, different languages give it different names. Um, you might refer to it as the blues. Uh, apparently, uh, the Dutch, I'm checking with you, Kurt, uh, they have a, an expression that means literally sitting down with the luggage. Is that correct? He's going to think about it. Kurt's going to think of it. He's the only, the only Dutch person that I know, and I couldn't check it out with you beforehand. In Ghana, they refer to the heart being hidden in a case. All different ways of talking about depression. Now, all of us may go up and down, but some of us do battle with more severe cases. Mental health, however, is just like a physical illness, and thankfully the stigma around it has decreased in recent years. Uh, we have now a situation where lots of celebrities will feel quite comfortable in sharing their own struggles. So whether it's Lady Gaga or J.K. Rowling or Adele or the singer Will Young or even the footballer Stan Collymore, who was able to say all the way through his football career he battled with depression, with anxiety. And as he said, it's an illness. It's just an illness that you can't see. Mental illness is exactly the same as chickenpox or measles, but it's just harder to spot and it's just more difficult to see. Well, that's where Elijah is. Elijah is suicidal. Elijah is saying, no more, God, I want to die. How does God respond? Well, let's look very quickly at some steps that God responds with and how we might respond to the people around us. The first thing that Elijah responds or, or receives from God is something that, to begin with, doesn't appear very spiritual. Somebody might come to us in a, in a situation like this and we we'll say, well, I'll pray for you. Or you might, you should come back to church or you should come back to the connect group. That's not what God says. You know, the first thing that God does for Elijah is he allows him to sleep. He allows him to sleep. Elijah lay down under the bush and fell asleep. You see, when you get physically exhausted, you start to lose that sense of perspective and proportion. You start to see things as they really aren't. Some of you at the moment, perhaps you're a young parent and you are battling with a lack of sleep. And you are thinking now, how did I exist beforehand with the amount of sleep that I used to get before I became a parent. Uh, maybe if you're a husband, you've made the mistake that I made. Uh, just after Josh had been born, uh, within the first two or three months, our eldest. Um, and I remember turning over to Kathy at about seven o'clock in the morning and uttering these stupid and fateful words. <laughs> he slept right through. I only said that once because the look that I got back, pinned me to the bed head with a sort of, don't be stupid, of course he didn't sleep right through. He woke four times in the night. But yes, you slept right through. <laughs> but some of you know what it's like to be sleep deprived at the moment. And when you're deprived of sleep, of course your kids are worth it. <laughs> but it feels horrible. You feel as though, can I really go on? God allows Elijah to sleep. It's very practical. And the next thing that God does for Elijah, again, doesn't look particularly spiritual, but he, he feeds him. He feeds him with bread and water. 
Not, oh, not ornate food, not rich food, but very simple food, perhaps because he knows that's all that Elijah can cope with. And he, he wakes him in order to feed him with a gentle touch. That's the third thing, a gentle touch. God could have done any number of things to wake Elijah up. God could have sent lightning. God could have sent anything. God could have sent a big booming voice saying, wake up, Elijah. He doesn't do that because he knows that Elijah can't cope. And so he sends an angel, a messenger, who wakes Elijah up with a gentle touch because that's all Elijah can cope with. When you feel like Elijah felt, when you feel as though the world has given up on you, touch is really important. It needs to be appropriate and it can be abused. But just putting your hand on someone's hand, putting a hand on someone's shoulder, can be so reassuring and comforting to somebody who's going through a tough time. Gentle touch and then food and drink. And I love the description in 1 Kings 19, he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals. It's nothing like waking up to the smell of freshly baked bread. There's something about the smell of freshly, freshly baked bread. It's so powerful that supermarkets will pump it out of their air conditioning system around the bakery in order to attract us to go and buy fresh bread. That's the smell that Elijah wakes up to. Freshly baked bread over hot coals. Because God cares for Elijah and wakes him up. And the angel of the Lord, it may be Gabriel, but one translation is literally the messenger of the Lord. And the inference there is it's probably Jesus who comes. It's Jesus who comes and touches Elijah. And it's Jesus who wakes Elijah up. And when years later they meet on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah recognizes Jesus and Jesus recognizes Elijah because they've already met on this mountain before when Jesus touched him and woke him up and gave him breakfast. Because apparently that's what Jesus does when he wakes people up. He cooks breakfast. Isn't that good? Jesus is really good at cooked breakfasts. We're told several times in the Bible that Jesus is really good at cooked breakfasts. Doesn't mean that we should always eat a cooked breakfast, but maybe just eat the ones that Jesus makes for us. Next, God gives Elijah something to do, verses 7 and 8. He tells him to go somewhere. He sends him to Horeb, 170 miles away. And he does that for, for two reasons, perhaps. He does it to get him moving, but also to give him time. Because he has to walk 170 miles. And as he walks, he has time to think. And he has time to think about how he's feeling and time to think about what's going on and what has happened. Notice God doesn't say, bless you, he doesn't say, don't worry, time heals. There are no platitudes that come from the mouth of God. But God gives him time. He doesn't talk about time. He gives him time. And he allows Elijah, as he walks to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai, 
to think, to feel, to recognise what he's thinking and what he's feeling. And it takes a long time, verse 8. He walks for 40 days and 40 nights. That literally means a long time. And he goes back to basics. It's no accident where God sends Elijah. He sends him to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where Moses got the Ten Commandments. He's taking him back to where it all begins. He's reminding Elijah of who he is. But he's doing it very slowly, and he's doing it very gently at a pace that Elijah can cope with. And then there's that one description saying that when he got there, Verse 8, 9, he went into a cave and spent the night. The cave is no ordinary cave. The cave is where Moses himself hid when God passed by hundreds of years before. And that's where Elijah spends the night. Not any old cave. And then there comes this discussion Because the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And what God says in that situation is quite revealing. There's no divine wagging finger. There's no sermonizing. There's no lecture. There's no reference back to, don't you know what I said to you earlier on in my word, Elijah? God simply comes and asks a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? The question isn't a geographical one. It's not a question that God asks about where geographically Elijah finds himself. The question is more spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. What are you doing here, Elijah? And the answer becomes very clear because what pours out from Elijah is his reply. It's as if God presses a button and out comes this speech, maybe that Elijah has been repeating all the way for those 170 miles that he's been walking. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too, as if God doesn't know. But a button's been pressed. And what comes out of Elijah is anger, is fear, is self-pity, is self-justification, injustice, loneliness. It's real sort of victim mentality and it runs very deep in Elijah. It's very raw emotion that's being expressed by Elijah. And what happens next then, again, is significant because we're told that God comes and meets Elijah. And the way in which God comes and meets Elijah, again, is very significant. Elijah has known incredibly powerful manifestations of God. He's just seen that on Mount Carmel. He's used to that. But that's not how God comes. 
We're told that there was a wind and God wasn't on the wind. We're told there's an earthquake and God isn't in the earthquake. And then there's a fire and God isn't in the fire. And then God comes in a gentle whisper. Literally, the sound of gentle silence. And that's when God comes. In the sound of gentle silence. That's when God comes. And that's when God asks again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And even though Elijah has had this God encounter, the tape is still running. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, which is you. Your people have rejected you. They've broken your covenant and I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. It's still running. That tape is still going on because it runs so deep. And maybe Elijah has got stuck in that way of thinking and talking about himself. But then again, what happens next is significant. Um, I've heard talks on this passage that say, well, immediately God takes Elijah up into heaven. There's only one problem. That's not what happens next. What happens next is that God gives Elijah a new role, a new king, and a new friend. Verse 15. He tells him, anoint Hazael as king of Aram or Damascus, anoint Jehu as king of Israel, and anoint Elisha as your successor. What happens is that Elijah is given a new job, a new role, a new king, a new friend, and a new team. Yes, Elijah is taken up into heaven, but that's not before he's mentored and walked alongside his successor, Elisha. So Elijah is shown that he's not on the shelf that God hasn't forgotten about him, that he's not redundant, he's not forgotten, he's not left behind, and he's actually given something new to do. And then there's this throwaway line, verse 18, where God gives Elijah a fresh perspective. Where God simply says, oh, and Elijah, by the way, there are 7,000 people who still serve me in Israel. You're not alone. 7,000 people that I've reserved who still follow me, and they're on your side. So never mind Jezebel, never mind all her threats, because there are still 7,000 people in Israel. And if you are willing, Elijah, that will be 7,001. And I'll give you that job to do, and I'll give you that new role. And what we see in the way that God deals with Elijah is this incredible care and compassion that he goes only at a pace that Elijah can cope with. And he walks alongside Elijah and he meets Elijah in a way that Elijah can again cope with. He doesn't come in the earthquake, he doesn't come in the wind, he doesn't come in the fire, he comes in the gentle silence. And so as as I finish this morning, I just simply want to ask you that question. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And it's one of the most profound questions that can ever be asked because it's not the question that maybe you were thinking as you were on the way to church this morning, battling through a blizzard, thinking, what am I doing here? 
It's not that question. But the question is, what are you doing here? How is your soul? How are you feeling psychologically? How are you feeling emotionally? How are you feeling spiritually? How are you feeling physically? Are you getting to that point where you're coming to the end of yourself, where you need to readdress and recalibrate maybe the pattern of your life and the rhythm of your life? Maybe something's happened to you and you feel that you've come to the end of yourself. Maybe something has happened to someone that you know or love and you're in that position of having to look after them and care for them because you recognize that at the moment when you press the button, the tape just runs and all that comes out is pity and justification and woe is me and I'm alone and oh. Maybe that you're ministering to an England rugby fan who feels like that this morning. The world has come to an end. But maybe you're really ministering and serving and looking after somebody who has come to the end of themselves, who feels as though God has given up on them, life has given up on them, work has given up on them, meaning has departed, and they've been put on the shelf. So whether it's you this morning, or whether it's somebody that you know, that profound question comes, what are you doing here? And are you willing to open yourself up this morning to God and allow him to speak? Allow him to speak to you in the gentle silence. For you to be reminded how much he loves you. For you to be reminded how much he can be trusted. For you to be reminded that he is still in charge despite appearances to the contrary. For you to be reminded that the person that you're looking after or care for or love, you hand them over to God's hand and he's big enough to cope with them. And he's big enough to look after them. And maybe this morning is a time just for all of us to take a step back and for our sense of perspective and proportion to be restored. To remember who God is. To remember the value that he places upon our lives. And then this morning to come and to be honest with him. And to be honest with ourselves. And then allow him to be honest with us as to what he thinks for us. What he thinks of us. And what he's saying to us. If God asks you this morning, why are you here? What would you say? What are you saying now? And what is God saying?